Well, tonight we pick up our study in Daniel chapter 7, this marvelous section we're looking the whole chapter, but particularly tonight, we're going to look at verses 9 through 14, gain a greater glimpse at these parties that are unfolded here in Daniel's great vision. Just to read it, here's what Daniel writes. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, And I kept looking until the beast was slain, and the body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming." And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and the kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This marvelous text before us is... We'll capture our attention for tonight. Daniel once again gives us a glorious picture into God's final events. I almost feel like Daniel in verses 15 and 16 when he says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I feel the same way. Who will understand the riches of this text? The great news is that Like Daniel, Daniel turns in verse 16 there. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. And so he told me, praise be to God. God gives us the answer for what is unfolding in this marvelous text. He will help us to understand the riches and help us understand the details that are unfolded here. And again, these will be details that God himself gives that he unfolds and reveals. It is interesting that everyone knows that our ministry is committed to a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic, that we would be you know, committing ourselves to understanding the plain meaning of the Scriptures. And some might call foul on us when it comes to prophecy and say, well, you're taking this symbolic language and you are then giving specific meaning to it. How can you do that when you say you take everything literally? As to say that we should really be able to treat symbolism the same way in prophecy as symbolism throughout the rest of the Scripture. They would say, for example, that why don't we go to Joseph's coat of many colors and see the various colors and interpret that symbolically, just like you're handling this prophecy here. Well, I'll just say this. 
Because you don't see in the rest of Scripture God interpreting that symbolism, but you do in prophecy. You don't see God in the rest of Scripture saying, well, the red in Joseph's coat means the blood, and the black means death, and the white means holiness and cleansing, and on and on the list of colors go. You don't see God unfolding that in Scripture, but here in these prophecies, you see God giving further explanation to these details throughout the Scriptures. And that's what I will draw your attention to tonight. We're in a particular genre, the genre of prophecy. And in this, God is revealing and unfolding his divine plan. And as he unfolds his divine plan, he speaks in such a way as even Daniel is fully uh, seeing the events, but not fully grasping all the particular details. And God is progressively unfolding that plan, even through the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, 7, 8... 9, 10, 11, and 12, he, starts, he unfolds the same events, giving more and more details, more and more insights, which expands out our picture and understanding. In fact, if we take the whole scripture together, God speaks directly about this end time event many times in the scriptures. As I said, the book of Daniel, multiple times, from chapter 7 through 12, is all about these end time events. Chapter 2 as well. But on top of that, you have the Sermon, uh, or Sermon the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. Jesus unfolds more details about this particular time period in that sermon. And then you have the book of Revelation. In that whole book, there's a description of the coming end. You speak of the final kingdom to come, the great tribulation, the Antichrist, etc. So God speaks very thoroughly on this very topic of end times, let alone all of the indirect passages. Passages like the speaking of the Antichrist out of 1 John or the rapture and the man of lawlessness out of First and Second Thessalonians, or the kingdom of God and God's judgment in First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, or even the restoration of God's people in the book of Romans. All of these implications are unfolded throughout the scriptures as well. So all this to say is, when we come to prophecy, we come to a writing that God is unfolding his plan and making it clearer to us as we work our way through the scriptures to understand God's plan. We are, I guess, in many ways, feeling like the apostles when we come to texts like this, when we would say, how long, O Lord? When will this finally be fulfilled? When will you see yourself honoring and fulfilling and carrying out these various things because they are so glorious, we cannot wait. The buildup is increasing. So there's great truth revealed here. And God is accomplishing his good purposes here. And he is, in his prophecy, in declaring, he is putting all creatures on heaven and on earth on notice. That's what prophecy is. God is putting all of his creation on notice of what he is going to accomplish. God is saying, this is my plan and this is how I am going to fulfill it. And God is demonstrating in this that he and he alone is God, that none can thwart his purposes, and he makes it known in exact detail so that, again, it comes inevitably according to his good purposes. Now what we've seen thus far in Daniel chapter 7, 
particularly verses 1 through 8, is Daniel described four major kingdoms to come. You remember that one had already arrived, the kingdom of Babylon. The three remaining were yet to come. They were speaking in prophetic forms. Daniel, giving this, was living in the Babylonian kingdom when he was giving this particular vision, and he was unfolding the particular details. Four kingdoms. The last of those kingdoms, the fourth kingdom, would have two distinct parts. And the two distinct parts, the second part, would be described as unfolded in the text before us, uh, particularly in verses 7 and 8. It would be described as ten horns that came up. This is the last Gentile kingdom with a last Gentile ruler who's going to rise up and speak blasphemies against God. He's going to come. He's going to oppose the Most High God. And it is rather interesting as we are working our way through this chapter and we're seeing the details unfold. What is very clear to us as we work our way through this is that the end events is not about us. We don't want it to be about us, frankly. It is about the Ancient of Days, it is about the Son of Man, and it is about this, rule, this rebellious ruler who is opposing God. We can't be God, and we certainly don't want to be that rebellious ruler. So what we learn in the midst of this, it's not about us. These end events that unfold, as we're going to see here, is about the glory of the Most High God And we're going to see that in the contrasting characters. So tonight, we're going to look at the characters that are presented in this section. And then next week, hopefully, we'll conclude this chapter by looking at the coming kingdom of the Son. Now, again, this this chapter itself could be separated into the explanation of two great kings. You have the final Gentile king and the king who's going to rule in the final eternal kingdom. These two kings are contrasted here. But before we get to those two kings, the Gentile king and the king who's going to rule for eternity, another is brought to our attention, and that one is seen in verses 9 and 10. Again, notice as Daniel unfolds there, I kept looking. Until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And the court sat, and the books were opened." Now, this one is agreed by many to be God the Father. And I have no reason to doubt that. This is God the Father. And right now, what Daniel has done in this particular part of his vision has moved his eyes off of the earthly realms and the earthly Gentile kingdoms. And he has now looked into the heavenlies and he sees the one who is the Ancient of Days. He takes, in verses 9 through 10, our glimpse for a moment off of the earthly environment and sets our attention into the heavenly realm. This would, in essence, be like a change of scene. Verses 1 through 8, the first scene would be on earth and all the kingdoms on earth. Now, here in verses 9 and 10, there's a change of scene into the heavenlies, and God is, through Daniel, giving us a glimpse into the heavenlies. 
And notice his description. It's described as the ancient of days. Speaking of his eternality, speaking that is always existing. Daniel says there in verse 11 or verse 13, this phrase again, the ancient of days, is referred to. Look, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and it came up, notice, to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jump down to verse 22 once again. This one is referred to until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. This is a major character in this section. This one who is the ancient of days. He is the eternal one. Basically be able to say the one whose days are not numbered. The one who has existed On top of that, back in verse 9, this one, this ancient of days, this eternal one, also has his vesture described. His vesture would be his garments. They were like white snow, hair like pure wool. Describing potentially the description of holiness and purity. This one, again, this imagery of the eternal holy God. That's where Daniel turns our attention. He's addressed to the heavenlies. And as verse 9 indicates there, he is coming and he takes upon his thrones, verse 9, until thrones were set up or brought down, laid down, literally. The idea here could be Middle Eastern imagery, that there is a sudden throwing down of the pillows to sit down upon and begin to give judgment. An impromptu court is kind of the idea here. He's brought together and court is brought into session. This is a great ruler. His ruler, the evidence is described there. What comes next is, again, his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing through him. This is a great ruler who brings great judgments. One more element to this, that this is a courtroom scene. It says at the end of verse 10, the court sat and the books were opened. The thrones were set up. Multiple thrones, plural, it was laid out. And the books were brought open and the court sat in judgment. And at the head of this court is this one who is the Ancient of Days. Notice, secondly, in the midst of this great description of this great ruler, secondly, notice the multitudes that are there to carry out his edicts. It's the greatness of this ruler in verse 10. He says, There were thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. These are significant numbers. We look at them. These thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads. Who are these individuals? First of all, that who they are agreed to be angels. Again, if this would make sense, if we're talking about the heavenly realm here, we're not talking again about the earthly realm, we're now looking into the heavenly places. These myriads who are standing there, these thousands upon thousands that are serving, are angelic forces. Revelation 5.11 gives us that same imagery. One John writes, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. 
The same language used of the numbering, Revelation 5.11, the description of the individuals there, these are myriads of angels and living creatures. And the word, again, myriads is 10,000. So you have 10,000 times 10,000 there. Do you quick math there in your calculator? It's 100 million who are sitting there around the throne of God. I I don't know about you, but that's a pretty impressive number. When we're thinking about churches being big at 5,000 or 10,000 and football stadiums being big at 100,000 or 120, and now we're talking about 100 million plus thousands upon thousands. Speaking of the divine scale here, this is incomprehensible. You have a kind of divine army that can carry out exactly what God wants carry out all of his edicts, there are, again, God won't have a problem of manpower accomplishing his good purposes, as demonstrated in this mighty court. Now notice the third thing about this particular court, the activity. This is a place of judgment. You have a great ruler who is unmatched as the ancient of days, who sits upon his throne and rules. You have this great ruler with unmatched power demonstrated by the hundreds of millions of angels ready to carry out his bidding. And then you have his marvelous activity, which is that of judgment. That's what the implications of the burning fire at the end of verse 9 and the river of fire uh, flowing and coming out before him. And again, with the court sitting and the books were opened, this is judgment language. This is language of God bringing to account all they're there. He's going to set up his thrones. He's going to set up his court. He's going to open up his books. He's going to carry out the very edicts. And it's the angels who are going to go out and do exactly what he tells them to do. This is glorious preparation. In fact, it is there um, in verse 11 when speaking of the judgment to come when Daniel says, I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking and I kept looking and notice until the beast was slain and the body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. This is a judgment scene. The whole picture here is this glorious picture of God in heaven preparing himself with his legion of angels to bring about judgment, to bring about his final Wrath. It's the interesting picture. But now, what's significant about this glorious picture of God is what it's sandwiched in between. Not just what it's sandwiched in between. When we get this great glimpse into the heavenlies, what comes before and after in verse 10 and verse 11, or verse 8 and verse 11, says this, while... I was contemplating the horns. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, notice, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. 
Then in verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words. There is this one who is coming, who is uttering great boasts. Boasts that ultimately distress Daniel, as he says that in verse 15, distressed by what he is seeing. Jump down to verse 20, describing this horn there. It says, in the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. Jump down to verse 25. Speaking again of this horn, it says, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. In between the description of this boastful, arrogant king, this boastful, hostile ruler, this one who is speaking against God and against the people of God, comes the imagery of the Most High God getting prepared. While the arrogant, wicked, final king is ruling, while he is uttering his boasts and speaking in pride, God is preparing his courts to bring his final judgment. Here is this final king who is opposed to the Most High, speaking against the Ancient of Days. He is bringing great boasts. And we will see next week what those boasts entail as he seeks to undo God. But notice, Daniel just describes it in verse 11. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. He, Daniel is in essence saying, I couldn't even comprehend what he was speaking about. I couldn't understand that he would be saying these things, that he would be speaking in this way. This one who is speaking, it says there at the end of verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. They had an ability to rule for a while. This phrase here that they they were appointed for a period of time to rule we're not quite sure what that means. It could mean that these kingdoms, these Gentile kingdoms that existed, were allowed to rule and this kind of faded out of the picture as the new kingdom came aboard. Or it could mean that this, these kingdoms will still have a measure of rule in that final thousand year period of time before then they're finally taken out altogether. One of these... What we do see is this, that during the midst of this final kingdom, there's going to be this great king that rises up, this great king who's in hostility. And I do believe that in the midst, that when that great king rises up with his boasts and with his opposition to God, that's when God starts to prepare his throne room, his judgments. It's when God starts to call to order what he is going to accomplish leads us to the last great truth in this section is the final king, the great king. You have a temporary king who's limited and finite, but there is one more character 
brought out, and he is in verses 13 and 14. Here's what Daniel points us to. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This character, this individual, this is not the ancient of days, nor is he the second character, the boastful king. This is one who is one like a son of man. This is the final great ruler, the final great king who is going to rule over the heavens and the earth. This is the eternal ruler. That's what he says at the end of verse 14. His kingdom will not pass away. It is one that will not be destroyed. This is the the final king who's going to rule for eternity. Now, Jewish and Christian scholars alike refer to this as this is the Messiah, this one. We recognize this one as the Messiah who's going to rule and reign for eternity. Now, I want to point out to you a key aspect of this particular prophecy here. In verse 13, when Daniel says he was looking in the night visions, that second half of that, he says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And notice this one is distinct from the ancient of days. Verse 13, he came up to the ancients of days and was pre- presented before him. You have the ancient of days and his eternal thrones and coming before him is one like the son of man. But it's that phrase there that I want you to pay attention to, the clouds of heaven. He came with the clouds of heaven and then the title, one like a son of man. This is the description of the Messiah and he is described as coming in the clouds. And I want to point out this detail because it is this detail that the New Testament authors pick up upon and particularly the Lord Jesus Christ picks up upon. Jesus himself takes upon himself the title, the Son of Man. And Jesus himself takes up this very implication here. He is going to come on the clouds. He is the very fulfillment of this very passage here. He is the one who is the Son of Man. Now before we go and look at the defense of that, I just want to point out a couple of things to to draw our attention to this title one like a son of man. The title has two aspects to it. Like a son of man, or a son of man referring to his humanity, and the fact that he is like a son of man, reference that he is more than human. So he is human, he is a son of man, but he is more than that. And that's exactly what we see when we come to the New Testament, we come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one who is Man, very man, but he is also God, very God. He is the one who is going to fulfill this very title exactly. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 24. We'll look at Jesus' unfolding of this in the Olivet Discourse. But listen to this. As 
You turn over there. It is throughout the Psalms, the psalmists refer to the clouds as divine chariots. The coming in the clouds is a sign of deity, a sign of divine authority. Listen to Psalm 104 and verse 3. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Or Isaiah 19 and verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, notice, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. He is about to come to Egypt. Whenever they're describing God and his movement and his activity is describing God as riding in on the clouds. God is exercising the kind of divine authority that he rides in and demonstrates his majesty and glory. Now notice here in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus picks up on this in his final declaration to his disciples about what is to come and what the signs of his return and his coming are, he unfolds that in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, notice what he says there. Well, let's start at verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light And the stars will fall away from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And now notice, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So here is the title that he refers. Here's when you're going to see the Son of Man. Here's when you're going to see the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 and following. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see, notice, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great authority. The description that Jesus is identifying who he is and what is going to take place. The Son of Man is going to come and he's going to come riding on the clouds. Turn over to chapter 25 and verse 31 picked up again but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne he describes and again here's christ taking upon himself this great title of son of man turn over to chapter 26 remember the details in chapter 26 Jesus Christ is betrayed by Judas. He is arrested. He is taken into a kangaroo court in the middle of the night. He is falsely tried. They are trying to stir up charges against him, and they are accusing him, and he is saying nothing to them. He is silent, verse 63 says, that he kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. This very moment, he is basically pulling out his hair. He's in complete frustration. He wants something that they can condemn Christ for. And notice what he says in verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, and notice, and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Going to, you're going to see this. You're going to see the Son of Man coming. He's going to be riding in on the clouds of heaven. Turn over to John's book of Revelation. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. John takes us here into that glorious throne room where Christ is among the seven churches and ruling. And notice what John says about Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, he is coming, notice, with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Jump down to verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet. Turn over to chapter 14, Revelation, and verse 4. One more time, this glorious image is unfolded for us. Revelation 14 and verse 4 says this. Or Revelation 14, 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud, notice, was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand, describing coming judgment and the reaping of judgment. The point is this, that God has unfolded in many places throughout his scriptures that who this one is. Jesus has taken upon himself that very title. He has anticipated that he would be coming and he is coming on the cloud. One more detail, turn over to Acts chapter 1. Unless there is any confusion whatsoever that this is Jesus Christ himself, Acts chapter 1 should clarify that for us. Jesus is there with his disciples. It says in Acts 1 and verse 9, that after he said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said to a men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He went up. Send it up into the clouds, into the sky. He is going to return in that same way. He is going to come riding in the clouds, the sky, this one who is the Son of Man. This is this final glorious king. Turn back to Daniel chapter 7 then. As the rest of the scriptures explain who this is. This is Jesus Christ. This is the, he is the, he is the Son of Man. He is the one who has divine authority. He is the one we're anticipating his return. Back here then in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says this. Notice the description particularly of the Son of Man here in these two verses. 
He comes, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he is presented before the Ancient of Days. Now, verse 14, notice these descriptions. To him was given dominion. That is, the idea, to him was given authority. He was given rule. He was given the power to rule over all. This one, this ancient, this son of man, this one who is coming on the clouds is the one who is given authority to rule over all. Top of that, he is not only given dominion and rule, secondly, he is given glory and a kingdom. He is going to be given honor and he is going to be given a mighty kingdom. This is significant because the first time Jesus Christ came, he did not come receiving glory and receiving honor. He came again in a humble estate. Born in a lowly estate, he was treated as nothing, not regarded by his own people. Now, in this time when he returns, he's going to come as a glorious king to, re- to rule in his kingdom. He's going to come with great authority. And he's going to come with great honor. On top of that, it says there will be a peoples there that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That all the nations are going to have him as their center. He is going to be the great world power. The one who is filled with great honor. I mean, to some degree, I think in the story of Jesus Christ, this is the great underdog story. One who is seen as lowly, one who is seen as insignificant, one who is rejected by his own people is now at the highest place of honor and authority that every tongue, every nation, every tribe comes in subjection to him. And as he says there, the next section, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. That is an authority that continues endlessly. It's an endless, continual authority, an endless Continual honor, continual demonstration of the victory of God over the rebellious. As I said again, these great people, all the people there, the numerous people. I mean, so that the scriptures unfold. In Philippians, Jesus is described as all of his enemies coming under his feet. In Psalms, Psalm seventy-two, eleven. Says this, let all kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. There is to be honor, there is to be authority to this one. Fourthly, notice that the element of this not only is he demonstrating authority, not only does he have this glorious kingdom, not only do we have all these people as seeing him as the center, not as only is it, it's going to also be eternal. Fourthly, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. There will be no end to it, no stop. Frankly, that is a great joy. I mean, I don't know about you. I like to go to Disneyland every once in a while. The problem is it ends. You got to go back. Or you like to go on vacation. The problem is vacation ends. Now, the problem is all the good events that you had to, those end. Well, not so in this case. When this Kingdom comes when his dominion is established, when he brings in his perfect peace, it is an endless dominion of God's goodness reigning. Which leads to the last characteristic, it's secure. He says, it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It is a secured kingdom. 
cannot be threatened, it will not be rivaled, it will not be shaken, putting in the terms of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28, is a kingdom which will not be shaken. We'll have no, no rivals to this glorious kingdom, no threats that could conquer it. And considering that the one, like the Son of Man, can appeal to the Ancient of Days, to his hundred million strong army of angels, this is a secure kingdom. There's no worry about manpower for the cleaning of this kingdom, the protecting of this kingdom, for the ruling of this kingdom. This glory is going to be demonstrated. I think about this, again, this glorious picture. When I look at these individuals, whether it's the Ancient of Days, or whether it's the one like the Son of Man, or this boastful beast at the end, I recognize these final events, it's not about us. It's about the glory and the riches of God. He's going to accomplish his great purposes. And he's reiterated it over and over again. As I said, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus reaffirmed exactly what Daniel had revealed. Daniel is going to get more details from the angel Gabriel in chapter 9. He's going to see more visions on these particular events. John, seeing the glories of heaven, recorded these particular events in the book of Revelation. God is very clear about what he is going to accomplish. And if the earthly boasts of wicked leaders leads God to prepare his throne rooms, we then stand in anticipation. What is God going to accomplish in our midst? What I rejoice in the midst of this is this, again, is one of those chapters that while everything is falling apart in the earthly realms, God's divine plan is being accomplished. And next week, when we come back, we'll look at that glorious kingdom and get the divine interpretation of all these things and uh, wrap up, Lord willing, this chapter. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these glorious truths. And when we are tempted to be consumed by our worries, our wants, our desires, our worldview, may we come back and see your glorious plan. Rejoice in your purposes. Rejoice in the greatness of the King by whose name we're called. Rejoice that we get to serve the Most High One. And as we will see that we get to be a part of His marvelous kingdom and His glorious riches. And even though we see the wickedness of rulers or earthly rulers around, we recognize they cannot thwart your purposes and plan. No amount of earthly resources, no amount of earthly wisdom, no amount of earthly power, no amount of earthly weaponry will be able to oppose the greatness of your purposes and plans. And so may that comfort our hearts in seasons of distress. May that encourage us to fix our eyes on the things above. And certainly we rejoice, Father, that as you unfold your purposes through your scriptures, you are very clear, you're consistent with your language so that we can see plainly the unfolding of your, the events that you wish us to understand. So may we look on these as opportunities to rejoice, to encourage our hearts to steadfastness, to be prepared in seasons of difficulty because we know how it all plays out. 
The God who cannot lie and will not mislead, the one who is a jealous God, is jealously preserving your glory, and we rejoice in that. Thank you for this time in this study. It's in your name we pray. Amen.